God. This morning, we will come face to face with the fact that Jesus is human, the humanity of Christ. He's both. And as intense was that John's record was that the fact that Jesus is the son of God, his portrayal of Jesus, which follows today, is every bit as intense demonstrating his humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ is, I'm going to put it this way this morning, intensely human, fully human, perfectly human, human in every way that we are, except one. He never sinned. He doesn't have a sinful nature. But he is also intensely God. What does that mean? He is the flashing forth of God. He is undiminished in any way. He has all the attributes of God. And it was all dwelling in the body of Jesus Christ. That's a mystery. That is something that is unique. That there's no other person in the universe that can say that. And, and in the Gospel of John, we, we see both of those demonstrated in some really amazing ways. Jesus would talk about his unique relationship with his father, God the Father. He would say that he and the Father are one. He would say, before Abraham was, I am. And in many other ways, he demonstrated and spoke, and people recognized the fact that he's God. Which is an amazing thing, if you think about it. That here's a person who was born... They knew his mother and his father and his brothers and his sisters. This was a person that everybody recognized was human because he was. And now he is declaring and people are some are agreeing with him that he's also God, the one only God. That's amazing. And and of course, this is happening among real human beings at the time. They split in two. There are some who believe what Jesus says about himself, believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He who has come into the world. And then, of course, there's others who say, who get totally opposite way. They totally reject all of that. But but Jesus is, remember, he's always bringing people along. I mean, he didn't have to bring the people there along with the idea that he was human. He had to bring the people along the idea that he was God. And he was very patient in in revealing that about himself. As you can understand, see, today we have the whole Bible. We we, we know we've those of us who have who have been in the word of God know for a fact these things that, yes, he's God. Yes, he's human. And so for us, it's it's we don't have to be brought along with that. Now, here's the interesting thing. The fact that he was God, though, while it wasn't, I mean, a human, sorry, that was not a surprise to human beings. But it was a surprise to the angels because they had known him in heaven as God, the son of God, the word of God. And the fact that God would take human, kick on humanity to them was unbelievable. So 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 depending on the audience, both the fact that he's human and the fact that he's God is incredible. It's an intense thing to try to get your arms around. Jesus Christ is intensely human. He's the perfect man. He is also undiminished in his deity. He is completely God in one person forever. And here we have this morning in the face of the death of his friend Lazarus, we're told that he was deeply moved in spirit. 
and troubled and he wept for his friends and he railed against death. In all of that, he was essentially being human down to his core. I mean, we often think about his humanity in certain ways. But today I want you to concentrate on that's why it's the title of today's message. The idea, the fact that he was deeply moved inside and troubled inside. We don't normally think about God being troubled or even Jesus being troubled. You know, he's, we see him as, as it were, as serene, as, as, you know, all put together and so forth. I mean, he faced all these things in his life, you know, and he, and he, and he, and he was found a way as a human to always deal with all the negativity that came. We've seen so much, so many people want to kill him and so forth. And yet here we get a glimpse of the fact that he's as human as we are in every way except sin. And our passage today here in John 11 is extremely moving. It's an extremely moving depiction of his humanity. See, that's it's one thing to say Jesus was human. As, a, as it were, as an article of faith, as a principle, as what we believe, as a doctrine. But in order to really get on the inside of what it means for him to be human, we have to see him living out his life as a man. And, and that's what we see this morning in a very moving way. And if you think about it, John had a lot of choices in how he presented these events, right? The event of, of Jesus learning that Lazarus was sick and then realizing that he died and then traveling from where he was to Bethany where Mary and Martha and the tomb of Lazarus were and how he was coming in. He, John, for example, could have just said Jesus arrived on the scene and he, and he realized that this was his moment and he went to the tomb and he raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, those are sort of the essential facts, you know, that if you were just if you were like Mark, you know, Mark and his gospel was all business, all action. This is what happened. This is what happened. John is different, especially here. He is now crafting this depiction in a really remarkable way. And the choices, of course, we know that the Holy Spirit ultimately made these choices. Nevertheless, it's very moving to see him among see him see him there with Martha and 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 having her believe that he's the resurrection and the life and then seeing Mary come on the scene and all she can do is drop to his feet and say if you'd have been here he wouldn't have died and then for Jesus to go to the tomb and weep and and even to be told that he was troubled in spirit and 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 moved in spirit deeply and troubled which by the way is something that is on the inside you know, every once in a while I ask myself, how did John know certain things? You know, it's one thing to say Jesus, uh, you know, walked, Jesus even, you know, fed 5,000, because those are all things that you could observe outwardly. But here he gets a ability, and I think it's the whole, obviously it's the Holy Spirit inspiring him, but nevertheless, God saw fit to let us know what was going on on the inside, in his inner man. And that's a, that's a, a part of his humanity that I think sometimes is is not emphasized enough, perhaps not recognized enough, not probed to say, what is this really saying about humanity and about his humanity? He's interacting with his human friends, 
in a very emotionally charged moment. He felt the emotions. He had the emotions. That's a moving depiction of what it means to be human. Haven't we? We've all been there. As a matter of fact, we're surprised sometimes if people are in an emotionally charged situation and they're not emotional, right? We say, well, wait, how come he's not crying? Or how come she's, you know, so we expect emotions from human beings, right? But I don't think we expect emotions or have a, have a way of really uh, grasping and putting to terms the fact that Jesus had them sometimes. He was not exempt. I mean, certainly we see outwardly that the weeping that was going on with Martha and Mary and the mourners that were there, we see those emotions clearly. But he felt them just as much. And at a certain point, he also displays that in a public way. We saw this morning. He also weeps. By the way, not in the same way as the, as the women did. Why? Because they were very outward and expressive. His was just a, a, a sort of a, almost a personal moment when he wept. But he did. He felt the emotions deeply related to the fact that this man, Lazarus, his friend, died, that this man who was the brother of Martha and Mary died, and all the emotions that are part of that he felt deeply, and I think more deeply than perhaps anybody else, including the sisters on the scene. Look again at verse 32 of chapter 11, John eleven thirty-two. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet. You know that every time we have her depicted in the Gospels, that's where she always ends up, right? She was at her feet listening to him when Martha was so busy with many other things. Here she's at her feet mourning and, 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 and realizing that who he is and the fact that he, if he were here, her brother wouldn't have died. In chapter 12, she's going to be at his feet anointing him. That's who she was. Lord, if you had been there, she fell at his feet and she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You know, in her own way, she's expressing her same faith that we saw Martha express. Okay. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and he saw the Jews who came with her also weeping, the people from Jerusalem then went out to Bethany. Notice he was deeply moved in spirit. He was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Of course, that brings emotion to a crescendo, you know, when we finally, maybe it's when we, we have a loved one and we, we're we rushing to their side and then we see the fact that they died. Or maybe it's when we're at a funeral. Or maybe it's when we go to the to the burial site afterwards. You know, there's a point at which death hits us and it's full, horrible, you know, power. And, and, and we, come, we say we have to come to terms with that emotion. Some people take months and years, of course, to come to terms with that. But this is a very high, high emotional moment when he says, show me where you've laid him. And then she said, they said to him, Lord, come and see. And at that point, Jesus wept. He real, the, the full enormity of the of the fact that Lazarus died and the effect it is having on all the people around him, the fact that it, the effect that it clearly has on him, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. So the Jews were saying, 
when they saw that, what did they say? See how he loved them, him. They didn't mean at that moment, you know, God loves everybody, right? At that moment, they recognized that a human being who lost a friend, who was among other friends who were deeply grieved by the loss of that same human being, demonstrated his love with the, with the fact that he wept. Emotion expressed. Jesus is human in every way that we are except sin. You know, when people say Jesus is human and they go to the Bible, they prove it, right? Which is something that you do and it's fine to do. You know, often they start by pointing out things like, well, he had a human body. You know, he had hands and he had a side and he had ears and eyes. They'll point out that he grew tired, which he did, that he was thirsty. And all those things are true. But what's unique about this passage is that this goes to the core, the heart of being human inside, human in the innermost being. That's what we see here about Jesus. Human, by the way, I dare say, in the same way that we mean it when we experience most deeply ourselves what it means to be human. I mean, after all, right? Animals have a body, right? Animals eat, animals drink. What makes us human is what's on the inside, right? I mean, yes, we can walk and we have a brain as well, but it's really when we say his humanity came out, right? We don't mean that he was that he took his T-shirt off. What do we mean? In the inside, what that, that thing in the inside of us that makes us human, the fact that we think, the fact that we consider, the fact that we have emotions and so forth, the fact that we have a soul. Jesus had, listen, a human soul. He had a human soul, and we see it here. He wept. Yes, he did. And, but this morning, we want to ask the question, why? Why did he weep? Now, I'm sure we, we think and it's true that he was sad. And he was. Grief stricken over the loss of his friend. And he was. Weeping at the pain that Martha and Mary were going through. And he did. And that was certainly true. However, there's even more here. And remember, what we do when we ask questions is we go to the scriptures. Right. What does the scripture say? That, that, that was in his innermost being that, that eventually caused him to weep. Well, it's in verse 33. Notice verse 33. When, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. You see, that's the grief. That's the sadness. That's the pain. But then notice what's, what is said next. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled deeply moved in spirit and troubled. By the way, the Greek words here are very intense, and it really doesn't come out too well in the English translation. So this morning, we're going to spend just a little bit of time on the Greek words here for deeply moved and troubled. It's going to bring something out additional that that that, that explains more of, of what was behind the weeping that he that he did. Let's start with deeply moved, deeply moved. It's a, it's a big Greek word, right? 
I struggle sometimes to pronounce the long ones. I'm going to try. Embrina Omahi. Okay. Omahi. Okay. Now you ask yourself a question. What does this mean? And remember, you know, we see this in the Greek all the time. There's like a, a concrete or physical or everyday use of the word that people in that time would have used to describe something concrete, something natural, I guess is a good way of putting it. And that's the same thing here. It actually was used literally to describe the horse that was snorting. Now, you may not know that, but what that means if you're not around horses, but it's basically a noise that they make. That's the best I can do. If somebody can do it better, it's your turn to shine. But, but, but the, the fact is that horses do that. Now, of course, that wasn't what the word me- meant here. John wasn't using that to say, oh, listen to what Jesus just, the noise he just made. It sounds like a horse. As a matter of fact, there's no indication at this point that he made a noise, right? It was on the inside that he was deeply moved. So there's a figurative use of the word expression. As it goes from the start of what it meant naturally to bring in that meaning into a figurative use. And, and here it meant to snort with anger. I mean, that's what human beings do, right? They snort with anger. They groan audibly. See, that's what that's what the meaning and it comes to human beings. That's what it is to either with anger or groan audibly. like, Right. There's a depth of emotion there. Right. It's the kind of thing that would cause you to stand up to attention. Gee, I wonder what offended him. Right. Or, or like we hear somebody groaning audibly like, OK, what happened? You know, so that's what it means. I want to give you a definition though that I really like. And it comes from a lexicon that I really like, um, but there's a lot of them, of course. And uh, it's called Luo and Nita. You don't have to know that. You just have to know that there's Greek-English lexicons that translate Greek words into English. And very often, one single Greek word requires a lot of English words to capture everything about it. And it's no different here. It, again, the, 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 the figurative use, to snort with anger, to groan audibly. Remember that. Now, I want to show you what this lexicon moves to say from here. It means to have an intense strong feeling a of concern b to be indignant and that's something you don't see necessarily in the english right deeply moved in spirit we can think of sadness and grief and yes that's part of it a strong feeling of concern but there's that other part of being indignant angry right and you have to ask yourself why what was it about this moment, this situation, facing the death of his dear, dear friend and all the grief and sadness and suffering that it caused, that caused Jesus on the inside to be angry, indignant. Look at verse 38. Look at John eleven thirty-eight. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. By the way, that's the same word. And if you think about the two times, right, it's when he saw his the grief of his friends over the death. And when he came to the tomb and, and came face to face, literally, with the place where his dead friend was. 
Both times it had to do with a response to death, but it not only a strong feeling of grief, but also indignant anger. And we have to ask the question, why? Now, back in verse 33, we got one more piece of information, right? When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. But where? Deeply moved in you can talk in church. You guys still awake? You still have a Bible in front of you? In spirit. Don't miss that. There's no wasted words in the Bible. What is the, we talked today a little bit about the human soul and the human body, but there's also a human spirit. One way to think of this is that the soul is how we interact with the things of the earth, the things of this world. Right. The things that we can see, we learn and our soul takes it in. Our emotions are responding to things in this earth, people and situations and pain. So the soul is the way in which human beings interact with the things of this earth, the things of this world. Most importantly, other people, but other things as well. But the human spirit is is something different. You know, in, in Hebrews chapter four, we learn that the that the word of God is powerful to the point of of separating soul and spirit. So while we on our inside sometimes don't, you know, recognize the difference, there is a huge difference between the two. And this is what the human spirit is all about. The human spirit is the way that we commune with God. Okay? So in other words, the soul is all about one another in this earth. The spirit is our relationship with God. It's a spiritual relationship. It's the Holy Spirit, right? That helps us in our relationship with the Father. But we have our own human spirit. Our human spirit, as it were, gets together with the Holy Spirit. That's the wonderful thing about the fact that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling, by the way, in our hearts. So it's our relationship with God. Well, interestingly, Jesus, he, it says here it was in his human spirit, deeply moved in spirit. That doesn't mean in the Holy Spirit here. It means in his human spirit. What does that tell us? It tells us that this moment when he's when he comes face to face with the enormity and the reality of death, it not only touched his relationship with other people. It certainly did. He was emotional with what had happened, but it also touched his relationship with God, with his father, because it was in his spirit. And we again, we have to ask ourselves the question, how did that how did that? come about? What is it about facing death that would cause Jesus to need to commune and come to terms with his very relationship with his father? Now, we can think about that, but in context of death, I'm going to show you why that is in some manner of fashion this morning. Okay, so that's deeply moved. Then in verse 33, we have that second expression, was troubled, was troubled. And the Greek word for that is terasso. A little easier to pronounce because there's only three syllables. Terasso. What does that mean? It means to stir or agitate, to roil water, you know, disturb water. So, like, you think about it. There's this nice, calm, serene lake, right? And all of a sudden, a couple of boys come in. What do they want to do? They want to get some rocks and throw it in the water. What happens? The water is disturbed. It's that sense. But there are things in life, again, that's the literal, you know, natural way of this word, terrasso. 
By the way, it's used in chapter five with a with a with a scripture that that we had to wrestle with a little bit about about the angels stirring up the waters. Remember how we were at the at the waters and and the first person supposedly that came in after the waters was stirred up. Well, it's the same word for stirring up. But when we apply it to human beings, of course, it's different. You know, people get stirred up, but it doesn't mean that they're literally the water inside them. Although maybe we talk about our blood boiling, I suppose, which is kind of the same thing. Right. But we really talk about stirring up what trouble. Right. He came in and he stirred up trouble. And that's that's really what is the use of it here it means to cause great mental distress, inner agitation, to be troubled, to be disturbed. Again, very human things that we can all relate to that go on inside of ourselves. Right? Things get stirred up, maybe a memory from the past. Maybe a fact that you just learned, maybe a phone call from a doctor, whatever it is, certain things in life cause great mental distress, inner agitation to be troubled inside, disturbed inside. That's Jesus at this moment. Again, the same question, right? Why? What made Jesus indignant, angry? What what roiled him up inside? What disturbed him inside? Or perhaps better, who? Who did it? It's interesting because the commentators get this, I think, way off when they talk about, well, he was upset with the, with the people there that weren't believing. And, you know, that, that really, you know, uh, lessens what's really going on in the, in the soul and spirit of Jesus at this moment. Why was he agitated? Why was he disturbed? And while there are different opinions on that, the fact is the explanation is right in front of our eyes here in the scriptures. You see, at this point, what is going on? Jesus is facing the death of his friend Lazarus. His friends are suffering because of the loved one that they lost to death. There is pain. There is suffering. There is death. And in addition to that, do you remember how when, when Jesus was in Bethany beyond the Jordan on the other side of the Jordan River and he declared, we're going back to Judea. And the, and the disciples, the apostles said, we just left and they wanted to kill you. Remember that? And then he says, let's go. Right. And then Thomas gets up and says, we're going, we'll die with you. Well, what was that all about? That all about. And it was true that if Jesus would have, was going to cross that Jordan and when he did and he headed towards Jerusalem, he has this, it essentially was signing his own death warrant. And in fact, we know that a little while after this miracle that he performs and it's and, and in certain respects, because of the miracle that he performed, he would the the, the his enemies, the Pharisees, the, the chief priests, they reached their boiling point. And that led inexorably to the death of Jesus. So what am I saying? I'm saying that in addition to him facing the death of Lazarus, he is he knows also that he's going to suffer. That he's going to die. And you have to think about why does he have to die? See, that's that question. Why does he have to die now? Brings this into the realm of his relationship with his father. I've come in obedience to my father. And the father's will was for him to die for the sins of the world. So all of that is in play. The reason why I said a better question than what made him indignant is who? And the reason for that is that he is angry 
at the one who was first behind the very plot that brought death to the human race, the person. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Who was behind the plot? Certainly, the, 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 the direct reason that death entered the world was Adam, right, sinning. You shall not eat of the, of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, right? Knowledge of good and evil. But there was something that happened first, right? There was somebody who, who was plotting, who was scheming in order to bring that about, okay? Now, we know who that is, but I want you to see again to sort of understand the intensity of Jesus' anger and who it was directed at. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the spirit was more crafty, the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. See, he plotted. He was crafty. And he said to the woman, indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it or even touch it or you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Bold faced lie. He knew the opposite was true. That's what he was here to bring about, to accomplish the death of the human race, death entering into the world. Then he goes on, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That's been a temptation ever since in the human race, by the way, to think that you're you're like God. Right. We, we, we see we, we see that, by the way, we're starting to look at um, on a Thursday evening Isaiah study about how certain kings thought they were God. Right. And Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon thought he was God. We see it today. We have countries today where the leaders are telling their people they're God. Right? Like North Korea, for example. There are pastors, right? Cult leaders who eventually come around to telling the people they're God. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a human disease to want to be like God in the sense of not like him in his character. They never mean, you know, uh, forgiving, um, loving, gracious, righteous. They always mean his power. I want the power of God. I want the position of God. That's what Satan wanted, of course. He craved it more than anybody ever. Again, verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Another lie. Knowing good and evil. Another lie. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the body, the soul, and that this tree was also desirable to make one wise, the thinking, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And there you have it. Mission accomplished, or so Satan thought. Please turn to verse 17 now. Let's see the consequence rolling out here. Look at Genesis 3, 17. So, I mean, you know the story, many of us, right? So... The woman eats, and in that moment, she was subject to death. But then she brings the fruit to her husband, and he eats, and that was the sin. It wasn't the, you know, the woman 
hadn't even been created yet, by the way, when God said, declared that you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So it was the man's job in two respects. It was the man's job, first and foremost, to teach his wife and to be there in case she would have be tempted in any way. He wasn't there. We're not sure what he taught her, but she didn't get it right, whatever, however that worked out. The second one was to make darn sure that he didn't commit the same sin. So on both of those fronts, he failed, and God held him accountable. That's why we see in verse 17, then to Adam, the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and not me, it's not in the text, but that's kind of obvious, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Was was it was Satan right here? Was Satan said, you're going to be like God. No, they became as unlike God as you can imagine. You will not you will not die. OK, let's see. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. If you want to know why the earth has all its corruption and death and animals are ferocious and there's hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. It's because God cursed the ground because of Adam. In toil, you'll eat of it. Man's going to have to work. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, you shall grow for you. Those weren't mentioned, by the way, in Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth. It didn't say that he created He brought out thistles and, and thorns. That came after the fall. And you'll eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread, but then notice, till you return to the ground, you will die, because from it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. All right, with that in mind, now that's, what are we looking at that for? We're saying that who is the one who stirred the pot, who who, who had who plotted to bring on death to the human race? Well, it was the devil, right? But now I want you to see the other side of the story. Okay, I want you to see now... The fact that the death has a power and Jesus Christ came to deal with that. Please go to Hebrews chapter 2, 14. Hebrews chapter 2, 14. I'll give you a moment to get there. Jesus was face to face with death in our, in our passage this morning. The death of his great friend Lazarus. Hebrews 2, 14. The pain and the suffering of the ones who love Lazarus face to face with his own impending death and all the suffering that he would have to undergo. Why? How does this relate to the fact that death enters the human race? How does this contribute to that inner agitation and deep, deep, deeply move that Jesus was in his spirit, his relationship with the father and the anger? Look at verse 14. Therefore, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, human in every way, except sin. Notice that through what? Death. He was going to die. This was the Father's will, that through death, what will now happen? He will render powerless, finally, the one, him who had the power of death. He came to reverse the curse. He came, death enters the human race through the plot of Satan. Jesus enters the human race and deals with the result of what Satan did and what Adam did. Death entering the world. 
So again, through death, he, Jesus, might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So who's behind death, both in its its entrance and in its power in people's lives? The power just meant you're all going to die. You're going to be afraid of it. The devil. So it wasn't what made Jesus angry. It's who. He who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So quite simply, Jesus was indignant at the one who had the power of death. In in other words, he was here and he eventually is at the tomb and he's looking, he's saying, there's a reason why my friend is in the tomb, right? Because somebody had the power of death over the human race. And here's the result of it. He was angry at that person. He wasn't angry at people that didn't believe in him yet, at least not here. Okay, he's angry at the person who's behind death itself. That's why he was indignant. When we say Jesus is human, what exactly does that mean? You know, we're not going to be able to answer that in detail today. Okay, obviously. But isn't that the fundamental question that we wrestle with on a human level? What does it mean to be human? We need to consider that, of course, for ourselves and for the human race and for one another. What does it mean to be human? Like today we've seen, it means to mourn at times. It means to laugh at times. It means to have joy, but also suffer. It means to be able to think and feel and imagine and create. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are behind being human. Beyond, yes, you know, I have two hands and I walk upright. Sure, that's part of it. But there's something deeper and more essential. We should all ponder that question. It's a fundamental question. It's a basic question. Any any human being who's alive and thinking has to ponder that question and decide the answer for himself. It, It makes all the difference in the world. Now, speaking of the world, if you were to think today at that question being answered by, quote, the world... Right. By scientists, by the so-called geniuses in the universities, by our politicians. Right. You'd get a certain set of answers. okay? probably dominated by the great lie of evolution. And that's the if you want to trace things back to how do we get to the point where people are so confused about what it even means to be a human being. Right. And we've seen that that spread through what is it? I'm not sure what gender is and not sure what a lot of things are and all this confusion about this question. But you got to come to terms with that. You're either going to answer it according to the Bible or you're going to answer it according to a lie. Okay. now, again, we don't have time today to get into that in any kind of detail. Perhaps maybe we'll stay on this. And next time we gather after after our weeks week off, maybe we'll dive into that some more. Okay. But it's a fundamental question. It's also a fundamental question for for understanding who Jesus is, right? After all, he's perfect humanity. Well, what does that mean? What is Jesus the perfection of? You see it? Well, for one thing, he was sinless. Okay. But you might say, well, isn't that part of being human now? (laughs) Well, yeah, right? I, I mean, we give the gospel to human beings isn't the gospel the fact that we're all sinners and we're dead in our sins and somebody had to come and die for us? Of course it is. 
Jesus was sinless, and yet he's human. Well, if he's sinless, it means he didn't fall, right? He's not fallen like us and like Adam. He doesn't have a sinful nature. But you know something? So he was human, okay, in every way except one. And I want you to just see a passage in that as we as we move forward. I'm going to ha- have to take a few minutes from you at the end this morning. Apologize, you know, it's because we got started late. I'm trying to speed this up as much as possible, but we're going to take a few minutes more so I can finish up. Jesus was human in every way that we are except one. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14. One of the ways that, thank God, Jesus is human is the fact that we need a high priest. And it's him. He's a perfect high priest. What's a high priest? Well, a priest is somebody who intervenes on behalf of the people before God. And we have the perfect one. We have Jesus. The other high priest in the Old Testament They were sinful just like everybody else. When they offered a sacrifice, they had to offer it for themselves. They died. Jesus is never going to die. And he's perfect. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the ascension, Jesus, humanity, the Son of God, deity, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15. What does it mean to be human? For we do not have a high priest, notice, who cannot sympathize. To be human is to sympathize, to have compassion, to understand the, 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 the pain of the faults that we have as human beings. Cannot, it's not somebody who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He can. As a matter of fact, he had experience with weakness in the sense of limitation in the sense of tired, in the sense of weakness in terms of of dealing with all that he had to deal with emotionally and every other way. He sympathizes because he's been through everything we have except for one thing. He never sent. Notice 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. That's another human thing, right? To be tempted, right? To, to, To have... Somebody come before you like the Satan did to the woman and say, don't you want to be more like God? All you got to do is do this one thing. Right. That's what temptation is. Right. Just do this. It's it's not a big deal. Just this one thing that God said you shouldn't do. Right. Well, Jesus had the same character, Satan, come into his life and do the same thing to him. You know, just just fall off the terrapit of the, of the temple. And the word of God says the angels will catch you. Anyway, go ahead. Right? You know, you're hungry, Jesus. Well, why don't you just take a stone and turn it into bread? Temptation. He knew what it was all about, yet without sin. That's what's different about Jesus. You see, he wasn't fallen. But the fact that he wasn't fallen in the sense of having a sinful nature and sinning, you know, that doesn't mean that he lived in a pre-fall human existence. I want you to think about that. He's perfect, like Adam was, but he's in this world, which is anything but perfect. He didn't live a Garden of Eden life, right? He wasn't fallen, that's true, but that doesn't mean that he was untouched 
by the consequences of the fall. From the moment he was born, he was touched with the consequences of the fall. After all, he was in a world where the Roman Empire was persecuting and, and, and humiliating his very people. He was born of a woman, and that woman went through childbirth, which is a painful one, which is a consequence of the fall, right? He certainly was touched by the consequences of the fall. How can I say that? Well, think of it. What changed when Adam fell? In other words, what was the inescapable result of the fall for the entire human race? We saw it this morning. What was it? First and foremost, Adam falls. And, and Satan, what did Jesus, what did the Lord, yes, Jesus, say? If you, if you do this, if you eat from the free, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Right? Isn't that the unescape, inescapable result of the fall for the human race? Now you will die. Now you will be subject to death. Was Jesus immune from that? Or, I guess the question is, on the other hand, was he affected by death? Now, the answer, I hope we're seeing now, is he was. Right? I mean, he had friends die. Right? And he's going to die. He will experience death. That is a post-fall reality of being human. He wasn't sinful, but he had to deal with the consequences of the fall. And, and number one is death. And not only do you have to deal with them, very literally, he bore the consequences, the weight, the full weight of the fall in his own humanity. I say humanity this morning because, yes, the sins of the world were poured out upon his body when he was on the cross. But the but the thing, but he in his emotions and his thinking and every part of his being had to carry the weight of the sin of the world. It was his whole humanity. Look at First Peter chapter two verse twenty four. 1 Peter chapter two verse twenty four. Jesus was affected by death, the result of the fall. And Jesus would experience death. He came face to face with the death of his friend. He, came, he will come face to face with his own death. He bore the consequences, the weight, the suffering, the crushing, the, the, the bondage, if you will, in that sense, that had to free us from it. He bore all the consequences of the fall in his own humanity. Look at 1 Peter 2, 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Go back to the way it was before we fall, fell. By his wounds, dying on the cross, you were healed. In other words, death came into the human race. He came to take care of death. By dying. And that means now that we are healed. If we believe in Christ. What does that mean? We will, we will uh, overcome death someday. It doesn't mean we won't die physically. But as believers in Christ, we will overcome it forever. We'll be in a body, a resurrection body that can't sin and is perfectly alive just like Jesus in his humanity is now and always will be. Verse 24, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. 
He came to earth. I mean, Martha had said of him, you are the one who has come into the world. Why? He came to earth and became human. Why did the, why did the word become flesh? Well, first and foremost, not only certainly, but first and foremost, that he might die for us. That he might, far from living a pre-fall existence, that he would come face to face with the consequences of the fall like no other human being ever before or since. That's why he came. So he could die for us. As we close today, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is why he died. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He was willing. In the garden, he said, if there's any way to remove this cup, Father, what was that? The cup, not just of death, but of bearing the sins of the whole world, right? Of coming face to face, not only with death, but sin. He bore sins in his body. God the Father judged sin itself in his body on the cross. It was far more than a physical death, folks. Far more. Father, if you would be willing, let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. He came to do the will of his father, which involved, included death. And then what was the result? Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The father made Jesus, who knew no sin, perfect humanity, human just like we are, except for sin, to be sin on our behalf. Wow. That, this is one of those verses that you'll spend your whole life trying to understand what that is, and you won't get there. You'll, you'll, you'll try to pr- pursue the depth of how this can possibly be. How can somebody who's perfect humanity, God in the flesh, become sin? See, that's the mystery, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that That he became sin, now first of all, because he bore our sins and sin was judged in his body, certainly became sin in that way. He became the sin offering, right? But he also was the one who took in all the consequences of sin, the fall, in the sense of death. So that's what it means. That's my understanding now anyway, of what it meant for he who knew no sin to be sin. Why? On our behalf. So that. For the purpose, for a new result for the human race, whoever would believe in him. New result. There was a result of the fall. And now there's a new result for those who believe in the one who died and rose again. So that we might become, notice this, the righteousness of God in him. In Christ. We always need Christ. But in him, we are the righteousness of God. That means he's declared us God forever to be righteous. That is our sins and iniquities. He doesn't remember anymore. That as far as he's concerned, he looks at us in Christ and says, you are in my eyes righteous. You're not there yet in your experience, but you're there in the most essential way, which is how I see you, God says. That we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. If we had more time, I would get into a more detailed study this morning of what it means to be human What does the Bible say? What does it mean to say Jesus is human? But alas, we must wait for another time. But I want perhaps when we return from vacation, I haven't decided yet, we'll dive into that a little bit. But I'm going to leave you with a teaser this morning. Just a tease. So something that Jesus said to a man who wanted to know how to get eternal life. 
Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. What does it mean to be human? In God's eyes. Why did he create us, ultimately? How is it that we live in how he created us to be human? That's what really matters at the end of the day. God created us to be human for purpose. What is it? And how is it that we, in our humanity, live in fulfilling that purpose for whom, for which we have been created? Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What was he asking? How do how in my person do I get to reverse the consequences of the fall, right? I want to live forever. But I, I think I have to do something. That's the fatal mistake this guy made. You don't have to do anything. Jesus did it all. He simply believed that. Right. In any event, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And, and the lawyers answered. Notice how he answered. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This morning, I want you to see this as an answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? If you do this, you shall live. In other words, the purpose for which the Lord God created you, right? Well, what does it take? What is it about being human that the Lord is asking us, commanding us, really, although we could never do it without Christ and the Holy Spirit. And notice what parts. And notice that these things are uniquely human. Look at, again, verse 27. He answered, first of all, you shall love. Isn't that essentially human? We talk about our dogs loving us. That's a, that's a load of, they don't love us. You know what they do? They love food. That's what they love. They love treats, okay? They, they want us around because they know we take care of them, but that's not love. That's uniquely human and God, but I'm talking about being human, being in the image of God. Still, we love, we love who? The Lord your God. That's first and foremost, to love God. We were here to worship, adore, glorify God. That's the essential part of being human. Part, and, and then Jesus is that, right? But then he goes on, how? With all your heart. What does that mean? It means we have a heart and that makes us human. And when we use all of it to worship God, we're being as human as we can be. And with all your soul, I mentioned this already, to be human is to have a soul. But to live as God designed us as humans, we are to love him with all our soul. And with all your strength, we have inner strength as well as outer strength. God says, I want you to worship me with all of that, with all your mind, with, with all how your mind, our minds are being renewed, right? We have the mind of Christ. See, we're, we're on our way to this finally after Jesus came and reversed the curse. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
we want to thank you again this morning for for allowing us to spend some time just pondering the fact that your son, Jesus Christ, the word from all of eternity became flesh and to ponder what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean that Jesus was human? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean that Jesus is the perfect human? And how does that relate to us? We, as you know, Father, we only scratch the surface today. We would ask in any event that the Holy Spirit would work on us in answering this question through your word and, and through through our understanding of your word. We ask also, Father, this morning that we would allow that to affect our relationship with you and our relationship with one another. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Just remember, ain't no Bible study for everything. You know, enjoy the time. I mean, we certainly have a profound thing to think about, right? During this time, next Sunday, we won't have service. Coming back after that. All right. Now, since you have a week off, it means also that, you know, you can practice. And there's nothing more important to practice than the gospel. Nothing more important. So let's do that together. Okay. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ starts with the fact that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. But God decided he wasn't going to leave us there. He wasn't going to leave us under the consequences of the fall without it, without a way out. And so he had his perfect son, God the Son, be born, become human as well as God. And not only that, to die for our sins. Think of it. God's son came human and died for our sins, for your sins and mine. He was buried just like Lazarus was buried. Same thing. But then something unique. He was raised from the dead on the third day and he'll never die again. Lazarus would die again. Jesus will never die again. Why? Why did he die? Why did he, was he buried? Why did, he, why did God raise him from the dead? So that whoever simply believes in this Jesus, your Savior, who died and rose again for you, will never perish, but have eternal life. That's as true for the next unbeliever who steps into your life as it's true for us who believe. That's the gospel. That's good news. Father, we thank you once again for allowing us to be here together, whether in person or on Skype. We thank you that you finally helped us to fix this problem technically, and we were able to get through the message. We thank you for all your blessings. We thank you for your grace and your love and your son, Jesus. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we offer this prayer. Amen. All right, with that, you are the...